Welcome everyone to this next podcast. I am so excited to share this conversation with Nancy Collier. I will have a link to Nancy's bio and of course to her new book that we are discussing here, The Emotionally Exhausted Woman. I will have that in my show notes. The book, as you will see from this podcast, is is absolutely brilliant and full of messages for every woman I know. So let's get started. Nancy, welcome back. I am so happy to have you. So glad to be here again. Always a treat. And I I will say, uh, before you even say a word, I'm going to say to your listeners, Big congratulations for getting yourself here to a conversation about emotional exhaustion. It is already a big deal that you are taking your exhaustion seriously. So I'm not celebrating that you might be exhausted, but just that you've gotten yourself here for maybe an hour of time for yourself. I know what a miracle that is, and that you're taking your own well-being Uh, to heart. So already a big hallelujah on that. And yes, I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for this gift to the world of this book, The Emotionally Exhausted Woman. I mean, it sounds hyperbolic, but honest to God, I have found myself on every single page of this book. And every time I go back through the book, I find something else. So it is just, it is, it is truly incredible. I would love for you to start our discussion with how women are conditioned heavily to be many things. And if you'll describe the society's view of this perfect woman. Sure. Um, well, I think probably most of us know when we hear the word perfect woman, we have a similar image. And, you know, when I give talks and workshops, I always open this moment up to the floor. You know, what's, what have you heard as far as what you're supposed to be and what makes a perfect woman? And I will say that the adjectives that come from the groups are very similar. We know you're supposed to be nice and sweet and generous and giving and kind and available and selfless, and uh, sexy, fit, demure, um, so many things, right? Um, We're supposed to be empathic. We're supposed to be generous. And all of it really, Libby, is built on no needs of our own. How can we take care of you? And from the moment that we can hold our little girl head up, it starts getting filled up with this idea that we are valued, we are loved, we are important when we give it away, right? When we give the better half of the cookie uh, to our brother or our friend and we keep the broken third of a cookie, we are celebrated. When we say we don't matter, right? What do you need? then uh, people love us. So we learn that very, very early. And um, there are great costs in that. There are great costs in that message because as we'll go on in this conversation, it goes deeper and deeper what that actually means. You know, I hear you list those words. And I mean, I, I identify with absolutely every every one of them. And it to hear 
them listed in a string like that is it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, you know, the expectation I had a, a woman asked me a question this week in a talk and she said, you know, but when my four year old is generous or does share, I do want to celebrate it. And so absolutely. You know, these are wonderful qualities that neurologically women are born with more of these empathic chemicals. So we, it's not about we have this other conditioning that tells us that, you know, if we're not that occasionally that we're a bitch or we're all the other things, you know, about the woman not to be. But in fact, what it is, is I told this woman celebrate when she shares, celebrate when she's kind and generous, all these yummy things that women are, and also celebrate when she wants something for herself, when she has her own needs, when she, you know, Sheryl Sandberg said a wonderful thing the other day in a talk. She said, you know, when a woman asks for what she needs or, or demands it even, she's bossy. I call that executive leadership. And I loved that because- love that. We want to reframe our more what have been called aggressive qualities, right, are actually a part of our fire. They're part of our drive. They are, we need those just as much. What I'm saying is we welcome this generosity and kindness in us, and we welcome our strength and our power and our want and our need. And we also need with our daughters to remind them that, you know, that's a part of you and there's more of you. And the same with ourselves. That's a part of us, uh, but it can't be the only part. And when we stray away from these classically female qualities, we're not broken. There's not something wrong with us. And that's where in the book I talk about what may be an even stronger message, which is this message of the woman not to be. Right. And that's probably the message we get from society even more strongly and spend so much of our energy, Libby, trying not to be. Don't be what we all know. Don't be aggressive. Don't be angry. Oh, my goodness. Don't ever be angry. Don't be difficult. Don't be controlling. Don't be high maintenance. Don't be needy. Don't be hysterical. Don't be selfish. That's it. Selfish. Isn't that the big one? A diva. Diva, a Karen, a bitch, a control freak. Uh, oh, we know. There are just so many. Yeah. And we get that message, don't we? Yeah, we, we do. We really do. And we twist ourselves into all sorts of pretzels to not be put in the box, not be seen and dismissed and rejected as one of those women, right? You know, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I, I heard a study, actually, it's not a story, it's a study, but of um, it was a Harvard Business School case. And I thought it was so fascinating where um, this woman, her name was Heidi Roizen, I believe. And she was a successful uh, entrepreneur. And she parlayed that into being a successful executive. And then she parlayed that she was in Silicon Valley. Then she parlayed that into being a successful venture capitalist. And two Columbia professors got a hold of this case. And they said, what would happen if we took that case of that woman 
And we gave half of our class at Columbia that case with her name being Heidi. And we gave the other class that same exact case, not a word different, with that person named Howard. And let's see what we get back from the field. Well, sure enough, when they interviewed the kids, the Howard character was described as likable, was described as a guy you want to go golfing with, a guy you want to work for, all of that great stuff. He deserved his success. What do you think, Heidi? Second half of the class, she was described as out for herself, competitive, competitive, and somebody who probably got there in some sort of unseemly way, and definitely not someone you want to work for. Oh, gosh. So frustrating, and yet sadly predictable. Right. So talk about how does success and power sit with likability? Because likability is our real goal, right? Oh, I'd love for you to discuss your perfectly named metaphor, the likability cage. Absolutely. Yeah. So the likability cage is the big predicament that we're in. This is the predicament because so we're taught to be kind, generous, take care of other people's needs. And we're also taught that taking care of other people's needs should take care of our needs, right? So Mm -hmm. when we're that person that thinks about what absolutely everybody needs and wants and we can deliver that, which we do spectacularly, right? You know, uh, someone who, for example, has uh, a person with a cold coming in for Thanksgiving and they arrange outdoor seating, let's just say, right? Wow, right? Spectacular. We're celebrated. Look at you. You thought of everything. So we start to tie this notion that, oh, that's what I need is to make other people get what they need. But then here's the thing, Mm -hmm. we get trapped. We get trapped by that. And little by little, we lose our connection with what we need. Because here's the big Mm -hmm. secret. It's not just what other people need. We actually have our own needs separate from all the roles we play, separate from who we are to everyone else. Right. And that's what we tuck away. And little by little, we lose touch with that. So we stop hearing the still small voice. We start paying attention to what is it that we need for ourselves. That's heresy right Mm -hmm. there. Even just to say, what do we need for ourselves? Then you become selfish. You you jump right into the. So we get trapped in this likability cage where likability trumps everything. And we're, we're told, you know, by social media, you be you, be empowered, be authentic, but we got to do it from inside the box. That's stay likable though. Yes. Stay likable. And you know what, Libby though, it's not our fault because really all of it is about safety. All of it is about staying with the crowd and not being rejected. And at a primal level and a primitive level, not dying 
really emotionally not being mm-hmm. rejected and cut out of the herd and then left to die. So this comes down to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Above water, food, and all of that is emotional and physical safety. And that's why we do it, because we're trained very early that staying in the likability cage is what keeps us safe, right? What overwhelming incentive that is. It's everything. Um, You know, yeah. So my women's group sat around a month and a half ago and talked about your book. And it was a wonderful night. And one of the participants shared that she had been hosting the family um, holiday dinner and it had always been the dinner. And she finally had realized that she really would rather host a holiday lunch, like a Christmas lunch instead of a Christmas dinner. It was just better for her and her, her brain, her sanity, everything. And the backlash of that planning and how there she was hosting the the extended family and the backlash of changing it to a lunch. Yeah, that's amazing. And you know, we all just sat around like, oh my gosh, but yes, uh, of course that that's happened. Right. right. And you everyone know? understands that. As crazy as that is, we all understand that. Mm-hmm. And again, what's tricky though is that then we have been taught to blame ourselves, right? So the next step for most women, and these are you know, really evolved, psychologically sophisticated women, the next step is, why can't I? What's wrong with me? Why can't I pull that yes. together? Choose a different way of feeling, right? Because of course, I'm to blame for feeling overwhelmed by the dinner part of it. I'm to blame for wishing it could just be a kind of contained lunch situation, right? So we jump right to, you know, not that it matters that we want it to be lunch, not that it's an unrealistic expectation I should do, none of that. We go right to, um, I'm broken, I'm selfish, I'm somehow there should be some other reservoir of energy and interest and excitement and lovingness in me that I could tap somewhere in my last toe that could make me want to do this, (laughs) right? So it's not even just, we don't even hate ourselves just because we don't want to do it. We hate ourselves because we we're not loving enough. It gets really specific. Like this should be what matters to me. And so often it isn't, you know, after we've been doing something for eight or 10 or however, 20 or three years, we just don't want to do it anymore. And that's the part of us that is shunned from the room, right? That it's just playing a lot of work and it's boring. And at the end of it, the feeling is, what did I get? What did I get? What nurtured uh-huh. me? I mean, yes, of course, we're always nourished and all these things by being. But so often, if you really get into it with women, and I have that privilege, the truth is everyone got what they wanted, and I'm exhausted. And all the energy is going out. It's like an umbilical cord that only flows yes. outward, you know, and 
And then yes. I get these sort of fumes of, aren't you this great person for doing all that for us? But that is not the same thing as truly being nourished ourselves. We might need to lay on the couch for the afternoon, or we might need to get, you know, some sort of take a walk and be with our own company. We don't even know what we want anymore because we're, we're, we're so trained to stay away from that what's wrong with you that you can't give this so it, it, it's yes. a, it's part of the trap do you think that there is an age where folks kind of hit a yeah. wall you know mid to late 40s absolutely. 50 absolutely oh my goodness well i wish you know because Remember, just to give you a little back history, right? And we know this, we can track this because of wonderful female psychologists like Carol Gilligan and Lynn Brown, but right around our tweens, think about it this way, 12, 13, 14, we've got this incredible conflict, which is if I keep being me, it might not work out so well with being likable. And I got to be likable as a tween. I got to be likable. That's survival. So this, this deal with the cultural devil, if you will, happens right there where we see it, where girls start morphing into what is wanted and moving away from what is authentic. And that split mm. forms right there. And the tragedy, though, is in that in that stretch, if we don't have really, you know, mindful moms um, or dads, um, what happens is that we lose our connection with our authentic self. We start defining ourselves by how other people see us. We stop listening to our authentic voice because it might be dangerous to our likability. So right in that stretch that happens. And then that tween becomes a 20 something, becomes a 30 something. And very often that split is never healed. It's just never healed. And so years later, wow. when I ask wow. women in their forties and so on, what is it you really want? Not so that you'll be a good mom, not so that you'll be a good wife, not so that you'll be a good uh, physician or whatever it might be. But what do you want for this, you know, one wild and precious life, right? And what they find so often is a blank space because the space stopped being listened to or consulted so many decades ago. So that's a beautiful beginning where we realize, I don't even know, there's no, there's no voice there. Well, there is a voice, that's the truth. But we have to learn, how do we start listening again? What I find, just sort of boots on the ground, is in our 40s and in our 50s, we, and, and, and hallelujah if it happens earlier, but we start recognizing maybe the kids are starting to be off and running and our big domestic roles are starting to calm down just a bit. But we wake up and there is this experience of where have I been? And, you know, that can happen, Libby, from inside this really wonderful life. That's the contradiction, yeah. right? That all things end in contradiction. We've created this spectacular life, perhaps, not always, but sometimes. 
And inside yeah. that, how did I get here? Who made all these choices, right? <laughs> yes. And so many of us wake up in our 40s and our 50s. And we say, when was the last mm-hmm. time that I actually got something I wanted? Yeah. Oh, it's such a beautiful and exquisite moment in a woman's life where she starts to make the journey back home, back home to herself. And and to be able to accompany women on that journey is just such a privilege. Well, that that relates to this beautiful quote from um, it's near the the beginning of your book, and I'll just read it. Um, okay, so this is you. Um, Over the years, I have accompanied innumerable women, a lot of them probably like you, on what I believe is the most important journey any of us ever take, from being whom you think everyone wants you to be to being who you actually are. It's a process of relocating your center of gravity and North Star from the outside world to inside yourself. It's a homecoming. I love that. I love that. (laughs) It's such a, it's such a wholehearted experience. And, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, as I said, I give all these talks and, you know, then talk with the publishers and all this stuff and people always are asking me what exactly is this thing that you are helping women heal and it you know it's so slippery and it's so hard to sort of name in a very very concrete way although that's my task but it is a feeling of yes it comes up as depletion yes it comes up as you know burnout and it comes out as irritability and it comes out as frustration and depression sometimes and anxiety and you know all these words that we know a feeling of having given down to your bone marrow and having nothing else to give and yet it's it's wider than that it's having turned our gaze, our precious gaze, gaze of attention outside, that the answer to everything Mm -hmm. lies outside of us. And if we could get the right this or that product, relationship, something, then we'll be whole. And we've abandoned ourselves in the process. So we've learned this message very, very early, as we've been talking about, that the best way to take care of ourselves is to abandon ourselves. (laughs) Imagine the best way to take care of ourselves and make ourselves safe is to abandon our true self. Don't speak the truth. Don't be truly authentic. Don't ask what you want and need because it's too dangerous and it might leave you out of the herd at the basic level. And so that's what the the predicament that the the book and my work these days is about having the courage to risk standing in your own shoes, which will come. I'm not going to sugarcoat this with a change in how you're received, but to come home to yourself and redefine what safety is. So safety is not about being likable. Safety is about being on your own side and being inhabiting your own true self. Hmm. It's a real shift in what that feels grounded. You might lose some fans. You might lose some fans, but you have yourself. 
And that for a lot of women is a kind of safety and ground and weight and power that they've never known. Oh, that's so beautifully, so beautifully said. You know, one one other thing I wanted to share with you is I really think that the original seed for this book may have been planted in my consciousness garden 25 years ago. I remember I saw a woman named Miranda and she said to me, she was this lovely, lovely woman and just connected and smart and beautiful inside and out. And she came to me and she said many things, but she said she was utterly depleted and somehow disconnected from herself. And of course, when you're a young therapist, you say very little, you just nod a lot. And then actually you come back to doing that later on, but um, you just say a lot of words in the middle part. (laughs) But she said something to me at the end of the session. I said, "What, what do you really want? And she said, I want a bolder and more authentic life. And then she said the really juicy thing that I wrote down at the end of the session, and I never forgot. She said, and I want that even if it comes at the cost of being so darn likable. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Yeah, wow. I think in my 20s, I didn't quite get that. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, do I get it in my 50s. Yeah. Yes, I am 47 and I 100% get that. Yes. So one of the most, I found one of the most interesting chapters, and, and I know this is it's hard to explain this in a, you know, a few paragraphs, but is the really the relationship that we have to our own needs and to quote you the attitude with which our childhood caretakers responded to our emotional needs is critically influential in shaping how we respond to our own needs as adults yeah so again i know it's complicated to but just could you give a couple of examples um sure of various environments Mm -hmm. and their impact. So we've been talking a lot about the cultural conditioning and it's always important to address the fact that the cultural conditioning comes into what is the most profound conditioning, which is the home. Because the home is where we learn whether our needs matter. We learn what needs do to other people. And we learn whether or not needs are safe to have, right? So all of that, you know, that sort of trifecta is learned in the home for the most part. So let's say, I don't know, let's say you have a very cold home where people are kind of disconnected or um, shut down. You might learn that, for example, you, you know, needs are not a part of life. They're not something that anyone is going to be able to take care of. They're not on the table. So you start to numb out on your own needs. You turn away from them because they're not important. Nobody shows them to be a part of life. Or let's say, let's say you have a emotionally volatile home 
and there's chaos and so on, whether that's financial chaos or emotional chaos or whatever it might be, you might decide that, you know, I'm better off keeping my needs, uh, you know, off the table. I'll take care of them myself, if at all, because there's just no space here for any more needs. The need space is occupied. Or, or maybe you might have, let's say you have a parent who gets very angry when you have needs. Like, what now? What now do you need? Well, you learn needs are dangerous. Needs make people angry. There it is, right? So no, Mm -hmm. absolutely Mm -hmm. not. And what's interesting too, you know, as a therapist, you see so often that our template comes from not being someone in the family. So let's say you have an incredibly dramatic sister who, you know, everything is about her and everything is a huge drama and so on. Well, you're going to become the one, you know, that can take care of herself. And look at her. She doesn't need our help. That becomes your identity and how you are loved. Remember, this is all Mm -hmm. about being loved. Or let's say you have a mom who's very depressed and in and out of bed and so on, right? Well, you're going to be the star by being the unbelievably competent one who never feels sad and never feels, you know, bothered by anything because, of course, daddy is going to appreciate that. You know, he's got this mess in bed. So whatever your story is, it is co-created in this environment. And, you know, I get to, again, witness human psychology, you know, front lines in the battlefield. And I see these remarkable ways that we adapt. And again, we try and find a way to be loved. We try and find a way to be known. And we build all these identities that are really about survival in the family. And then years later, we have to sort of deconstruct the identity because the identity came at the cost of somebody inside the identity that wasn't allowed, at least not allowed and also to be loved. Oh my gosh, this concept is so fascinating. You know, um, anecdotally, for, for me and many, many of the women, friends, and family in my life, we have been celebrated for our resilience and independence and everything since we were, you know, 12 years old, which is great. And yet then when it comes to us having needs in our 40s, those needs, we don't really know what to do with them. There's your trap. There's your trap. Yeah. Right? And and you're spot on, you know, so many of us, you know, alpha, not even alpha types, but very early, we picked up this message that we are valued when we don't need anything. And so little by little, that becomes kind of this very small identity. And we have to often really get to a place of deep suffering where the suffering breaks the door down 
and says, you know, I can't, I can't tuck this away anymore. I can't be that person anymore who only presents difficulty when I've got them figured out as a story with a bow mm-hmm. on the top so that you're okay. <laughs> because we, we've mm-hmm. spent our lives, so many of us, making sure that you're okay with me, right? And that means that I can't not be okay. And a lot of the journey that women in their 40s and 50s kind of face is getting okay with not okay. I'm allowed. Mm -hmm. Imagine to be not okay. And, you know, the first presentation of not okay is always makes me laugh because it's like, yeah, I'm not okay, but I have all the answers. So here, here's the presentation, right? But I mean, really to be with another human being and not be okay. For many of us, that has been off the table for our entire lives. And to be also allowed into the human club, also allowed into the vulnerable club, it's a remarkable shift. And for a lot of women, you know, it's a very difficult shift because they're attached to this fabulous idea of themselves, the person that needs nothing can figure it all. You've got this, you've got this, you've got this. But something has to break where, you know, I remember in my own life, you know, someone said to me, um, it was going to mean my doing an enormous number of more tasks um, to, to figure out this problem. And he said to me, he said, oh, we'll figure it out. And I said out loud in that moment, I said, we'll figure it out. I'm going to break that down. Let's translate that to, that means I will do a hundred more tasks. That's actually what that means. We'll figure it out. And, you know, when you start, that voice rises up, like from a place that is so deep in us of acknowledging how hard we've been working and how little we've been actually allowing ourselves to not be okay. So, yeah, it's so big, this letting go of the uber, uber, uber competent woman and to actually saying out loud, Libby, I not just I can't do it because very often it's I don't want to do it anymore. Right. Or I I can't Uh do it and be well. That's something that a lot of women can settle on. The truth is I can do it. Right. I'm a triathlete when it comes to tasks and I can't do it anymore and be well. And when that matters, when that starts to matter, we're in a new life. Gosh, so much of this resonates with me. Um, I'd love you to explain this concept of of core beliefs. And this is something that I, when I initially read it, it was almost like it finally dawned on me that I don't necessarily um, meet the world like everyone else. I mean, this is really, an, it's interesting. It's finally kind of to have it explained. At first, I didn't understand. And then I thought, oh. This is what she means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> well, is, can I ask you a question? In in what way do you mean that? Yeah. Well, what I mean is, you know, this concept of core beliefs. How we all have carry this backpack of 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 beliefs around with us. This is how we see the world, and we assume that 
that this is how everyone else meets us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think realizing, um, you know, specifically realizing that often men certainly don't carry that same backpack mm-hmm. that it, for women, it's such a, um, it's such an other focused um, existence. Right. And, and finally, really kind of exploring, you know, with my own wonderful husband and my father and wonderful men in my life, they made it that way. They, they carry no such, ba- they carry no That's such right. backpack. That's absolutely right. So, and thank you for that because it's so true to so many women and so many men meet the world, as you said, intuitively there and insightfully. Uh, radically differently. So what I find in terms of core beliefs, and again, it comes from this early garden that we grow in that teaches us about where do my needs fit? Where can I be safe, right? And then we come into this culture that says, you know, your value is in your taking care of other people. Your value is the more you can disappear yourself, the more you can be selfless, the more valuable you are. Imagine, right? And then we meet mm-hmm. this other. Mm-hmm. It gets funneled into the perfect and the imperfect. And wow, you know. And so we end up with all these very deep core beliefs that we don't even recognize are in us. For example, we believe we're not deserving of having our needs met. So many women believe that at the most basic level that they have to do something extra to be to earn having their own needs met. Mm-hmm. It is so deep in a woman's psyche that just by showing up, she is not deserving of having her needs met. You know, I, I was with a woman the other day and I was asking her something about this and she said, yeah, but, uh, you know, my friend, she had 10 chemotherapy treatments and she didn't need anything. And who am I to get to need something? And, and that question is just, it's so ingrained in women, right? Who am I to need anything? As if you need, so that's one deep core belief that needs healing. And, and you know, in the book, I talk about what, goes into that healing. Another very deep, Mm -hmm. and this is one I talked about a moment ago, but is I am to blame for the need I have, that somehow I choose this need, right? That, you know, we are somehow to blame for the needs we have. And if we were just more evolved, if we were more compassionate, if we were better in some way, we could choose other needs. Completely false. <laughs> Completely yes, false. Right. Needs happen. <laughs> I mean, I relate to that so much. I mean, it's just the constant, I, I, I need a lot of sleep. I'm just one of those people. And I apologize about it. I mean, hundreds right. of thousands of wow. times. I'm so sorry I had to sleep in, take a nap, go to bed early, right. you know, right. you name it. Isn't that it's unbelievable? It's it is. As if it you is. choose it's just how so much physiological sleep you need, <laughs> right? Yeah, like what right. a waste of energy in the apologizing. It's, it's exactly <laughs> that. You know, there was a, a woman I I saw recently who had been at 
she'd been at the water park or some such I'm going to, sorry, but some such horror all day, you know, with her, her young child and in and out of the porta potty and, you know, just, you know, no shade anywhere, a long mom day, right? Let's just put it that way. And she had to stop off at the, at the shop to get some chicken nuggets because they were out of chicken nuggets and so on and so on. And she was passing by this vineyard um where they have a band around five o'clock and it was the sun I guess was starting to set and so on and she had this overwhelming need to have a grown-up moment she could taste the white wine that she would sit down and have in the Adirondack chair as the band played and a moment that wasn't about being a good mom or whatever it was and um the moment she had that need oh my God, I just want something for myself, right? I don't want another soft pretzel. I don't want to go to the store and get nuggets. And right when that need appeared, she launched an attack on herself like a like a snake with venom. Mm. What is wrong with you? Why can't you be grateful? You're here with your child. How is it possible you focus on what you need? And off she went. And That's what we do, which is this false core belief that we're deciding on that need. Think of a need as it's like weather. We don't we don't decide on the rain. We don't decide on this need that appears. Oh, goodness. I want a moment for myself. Right. If we treat it like it's not we're not identified. We're not the author of the need. We can actually be kind with the need. But one of the deep core beliefs is we could choose to have different needs if we were better women, right? One other I'll mention too is, you know, I'll fall apart. If I start to listen to my needs, there'll be, the dam will break. I won't be able to do all the tasks that I have to do. I won't be that person or I'll end up, you know, just on the couch eating bonbons all day. We'll be this needy mess and we'll just go to Tahiti and end up in a tiki shack. And, you know, this idea that once the <laughs> needs are open, you know, that we're going to be this sort of, you know, wild character who wants nothing in their life. It's a very interesting core belief. I, I see it all the time. Um, I will fall apart. I won't be able to manage it if I let my needs mm-hmm. in. There are many. There are so many, and I outline. You know, it make they make me unsafe, right? If I if I'm need, mm-hmm. then I'm needy, and then I'm vulnerable, and then I'm unsafe. And again, the threat is to this unbelievably competent, uh, always okay uh, identity. I love this quote from your core from the core beliefs chapter. Are you expecting yourself to become someone different, better, better, worthy, the someone you should be? Do you need this to happen before you'll grant yourself permission to take care of yourself? Consider how long you've been waiting and how long you're going to keep waiting to become someone else before you're willing to start caring about yourself. When will the woman you actually are be deserving of your care? When does your experience in this moment get to matter? The truth is you can start relating to yourself as someone who matters right now in your fully unfinished and utterly imperfect form. What if just as you are, you're already deserving of your own care? You are. That's it. Beautiful. That's it. So beautiful. This is the thing, you know, when, when is this moment? 
and how you are in this moment important. Because, you know, yeah. part B of the I am to blame uh, for my needs, which is utterly false, I will say it again, um, is, oh, when I am a different person, right? And I'm this better improved version of myself. Well, then what I want will matter because then I'll have the needs I should have. The needs yeah, that are yeah, acceptable. Yeah. It's, it's the same. It's the other side of the same coin. But what about if in this moment, what your experience is matters just simply because it's your experience? What a life that would be to start living as if your own experience in this moment, in this, you know, full catastrophe and miracle that we are mattered. Wow. I love the I love the quote of the, the the that you have heard you say is the the full catastrophe of ourselves. What would it feel like to welcome and love the whole catastrophe of yourself? I love that quote. Yeah. Well, that's everything. That's the roomy guest house poem. That's really what we're working towards if we were to boil it all down, which is, you know, we have been taught again that the these parts of us that are not wanted by society that make us inconvenient or a bother or ask people to do things like take the food back that we didn't order or do anything that might they might create a problem for them. We have been taught that those are not welcome inside us, right? And so this work, this process of coming home to self is about opening the doors to the full miracle and full catastrophe. All of it is welcome. Not just these bits and slivers that make us likable and make us what's wanted. That's a life where our primal energy, mental, physical, sexual, psychic, all of it is blocked because we're at war mm. with so many of our parts. So this is opening the door to all of you. Come on in for the party. The raging parts, the incredibly empathic parts, and, and let's meet all of it. Mm. Oh, beautiful. So beautiful. I'd love for you to discuss your thoughts on the self-care industry and why, as you say, farming out our wellness is not working. Yeah. yeah. So listen, I'm I'm the biggest massage addict on the planet. I admit that, right? All for it. And there's nothing wrong with the self-care industry. We've got a $14 billion, last time I checked, self-care industry. It was the most Googled term, I think, in 2021, self-care. Um, nothing wrong with it, right? I, I share one funny story. I went to one, um, I don't know, maybe a few years back now. And we showed up and we were given these... Um, uh, cashmere blankets. We were swaddled in these cashmere blankets. We laid on this incredibly fabulous shag rug uh, floor in this gorgeous cavernous room. And the sound bath began. And during the sound bath of gongs and so on, they had uh, lavender infused uh, aromatherapy coming in the room 
there were two attendants coming by rubbing essential oils on our third eye and on our feet. Someone was putting moisture on uh, something on our feet. And then um, we finished it up with a green juice. I kid you not. I mean, the only thing missing, right, Libby, was like to be, I don't know, drizzled in chia seeds or something. I I don't know. They kind of hid everything. And, you know, we've gone mad, right, with like self-care. And, you know, for about a half an hour, I felt kind of peaceful. I have to say, I was laughing the whole time. Like, what else could you have thrown in there, right? But but the thing about the self-care industry really is that it's not just temporary and superficial. We've been talking today about these systemic, these very, very um, complicated reasons for our exhaustion, for why we are so desperately in need of self-care. And it is deep in the conditioning. And we pamper that, right? We, we slather that with some yummy coconut oil or some such thing, a chocolate loofah. And um, it's not just that it's a temporary solution. and um, But it's really that this is strengthening the bars of the likability cage. Our self-care industry is actually strengthening the very conditioning that keeps us needing self-care. And I say that because for one thing, just at the very top level, our self-care has become yet another thing that we should It's yet another Mm -hmm. responsibility on women, right, to prove that we are doing everything we can to feel well, that we are one of those women who self-cares. Have you self-care? Are you doing enough self-care? Really? Are you taking walks? (laughs) And you want to just like, you know, go postal because, again, the, the real message there is it's something you're not doing, right, which is why you're excited. Right. At the same time, there is this even more subtle message, which is the answer to your depletion and your disconnection from self, again, outside of you. There's a guru in India. There's a sound bath in Bali. There's a loop of sponge in Santa Monica. There is a forest bath in South Carolina. Get there, and then you'll be living a wholehearted life. That's, mm-hmm. again, the message that we've turned away from ourselves, right? That the destination is here, reforming a relationship with self. That is the answer to the depletion, getting curious about what is it we want to need? Who are we separate from our roles? What do we want to need separate from what everyone else wants and needs? These are the mm-hmm. beginning of mm-hmm. real self-care. And what our self-care industry creates is a gigantic distraction yet again from what is really ailing us, which is having left ourselves Mm -hmm. behind believing that to take care of ourselves, we must abandon ourselves. So, you know, have the massages, get the mani-pedis, but don't imagine for a moment that this is what genuinely heals your your deep level psychic exhaustion at the end of the day self-care is not something we buy or do it is something we are it is a way of living in the world it is a being not a doing and you think you know that's the way that you relate to yourself affects you 
every minute of your waking life versus a mas- intermittent massage, a manicure you get once a month. It, I mean, it, 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 it can never compete anyway. Uh, I mean, it clearly a very different thing, but also just, it's just how you talk to yourself is, is a minute to minute, uh, has an, a minute to minute a- effect on yourself. You said it, that's it. And if we're on our own side, if when a need or a want or an experience or a truth arises and we turn, imagine what your life would be like if you turned toward and said, hey, like you would to a daughter you loved. What's up? You know, what? what is that there? Oh, my goodness. Sit down with me. And we're talking about a 10-second process. We're talking about a loving energy to our own experience, not this sort of wary and challenging and unfriendly internal environment. We're talking just like you would as if your own wants and needs and experience and truth were of someone you loved. That we walk, as you just said so beautifully, we walk around with that minute to minute to minute. That's our life. And when you're living in that space where you're on your own side, we can really take on big challenges because we've got ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One story that came up for me is um, my husband loves to ski and he skis multiple times a year and he has gotten all five of my children to love to ski. And I have skied my whole life and, you know, the cold, <laughs> uh, my hands freeze, my feet, my I injured my rotator cuff in 2019 skiing. and. <laughs> I, I, I just like pray, like, please don't hurt myself. And I guilt myself about the trip beforehand. And then while I'm there and I should be loving this and I should be doing this and I should, I should love this. And I look at everyone else is so happy. And I'm just like gripping my poles, like, please, God, don't tear my ACL. And then I can't do yoga and then I'll go crazy. Um, those are, I get it. And you know, that's, that that kept coming up when I was revisiting this book this weekend. This trip is sort of looming, which is a, what, what a great way to talk about a family trip. It's looming. Right. I mean, right. It's terrible. Right. right. So um, true. But just the embracing it, the the the. So that gets us into. I'm I'm, I'm hearing myself say, I should, 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 should. Yes. yes. So get, getting us into the should versus want. So would you and and other other thoughts you have around sure. this. What are some things that we can do to then that really practice and and live live this life maybe a little differently? Right. Well, I just want to giggle with you for a minute about that. You know, <laughs> praying for no snow, praying for you know something comes up at work or whatever it is. Right. It's such a common experience, you know, and it's. What what it is, is we have these very strong ideas of who we should be, right? I should want to ski. I should want to be with my family. I should, I should, I should. And what that comes at cost of is what I really want. 
And we're very afraid that if we say, hey, you guys go ahead. I'm not a skier really these days. I don't want to ski. That we will still be in the fold, right? We won't be judged. We won't be, we're going to break the system. We understand that we're going to break the system as it is. You know, I remember my husband is European and so he loves to travel internationally and, you know, rent a car and run around Europe. And I hate it. I just hate it. I've always hated it. And everyone says, but you should, oh my God, you can go to, you know, Europe with a European. You should, you should. And I remember the first year that I felt like I was coming out. Like I said, I hate it. I actually hate it. <laughs> like uncomfortable the whole time. I'm praying. I mean, my, my older yeah. daughter and I, we put up this secret, like how many days left, you know, which we pulled <laughs> down because, you know, so, but when I finally came out and started living by want, which is, you know, again, it's like sacrilege, you know, to say, I should be all that, but I am this person. I am a person uh-huh. who doesn't want to ski anymore, let's say, right? So what one of the things that in living differently, so that you're not living in a way that creates emotional exhaustion, we start practicing, what if I started challenging the should first started noticing how much of what I do actually comes with should comes from should one client of mine you know she's packing her kids into the car for another summer weekend with the dogs and you know when I asked her she really didn't want to go on another weekend and when I asked her well she should do that for her kids for the summer that's what it should look like they should be on holidays and running about the kids didn't want to go. She didn't want to go. And the dog, I don't even think, wanted to go. But starting <laughs> to question what another woman, she has sex with her husband three times a week because she should do it as a good wife. She doesn't want to have sex three times a week. So, you know, we live. So the first step is to just start questioning how many of my choices and my behaviors come from some idea of who I should be. And then maybe I could just invite want, just invite it. What Uh if I did what, what if I did what I wanted here? What would it look like? So we're not even doing it yet. We're just trying to actually clue back into what is the want, right? Oh, that would Mm -hmm. be what I Mm -hmm. want. And then in very little ways, Libby, we start practicing it. Right. So, you know, what if I lived a little bit more by what I want? What do I risk? What do I risk? I'm going to risk judgments. I'm going to risk you're a Debbie Downer. You don't want to go. You know, you're no fun. You're not this. You're not that. Okay. What does it feel like if I stay with what I want and I show Mm -hmm. up in my family or in my relationships in a more authentic way? So we become more aware of this whole kind of blindness by which we've been operating, which is I just do what I do because it's what I should do, right? And listen, mm-hmm. sometimes we have to do shoulds. We just do. You know, we we have aging parents we've got to take care of or whatever it might be. It, it's not really coming from a direct want to go in there and, you know, do the meds and so on. 
And in those moments, what we're honoring is, again, on our own side, hey, sweetie, we're talking to ourselves. This is not easy, right? This is a should, right? You're doing this because you should do it. And it's hard. And it aligns with a deeper value of loving maybe this elderly parent. But we honor when we're doing a should that we still have to do. So rather than mm-hmm. doing the shoulds and saying, well, what's wrong with you that you don't want to do this, right? You should be a good mom. You should be a good camper, a good player. You should go out every weekend and do something fabulous. Whatever it is your should is, right? You should have drinks and dinner with, you know, all the friends, even though what you want to do is watch Netflix. But so we see that. We start to see, well, okay, if I'm making that choice, what, what is that? What does that get me? And what what is the real risk if I said, I want to take a night to myself? It becomes more in the light rather than in this unconscious. That's a big way we start to we start to break this emotional exhaustion cycle. We reconnect with that still small voice, the real authentic voice that is want, right? Want is our deepest knowing. It is our self. Mm-hmm. And I find I am finding as I'm getting older, when I do the shooting, and again, not the taking care of older parents shooting, but the socializing if I don't want to or or things like that that I should myself into, then I'm I'm not my best self in those moments. That's right. How do you notice versus that? if yeah. I mean it's I I don't really want to be there or I'm on the ski slopes and I'm freezing and I'm just hoping to go in and everybody can tell. And like you've abandoned, you know, to go back to the ski analogy. Right. And that it's very obvious or I'm, you know, I'm hosting some event and I think, why am I doing this? Um, And I'm, I'm stressed out and everyone knows it and versus just owning the want. And yeah, it gets cleaner. um, You know, it just gets cleaner. Right, which is also this has to do with, you know, welcoming this miracle and catastrophe, which is, hey, maybe I wish I were somebody who wanted to go out there and ski and be freezing cold and maybe risk getting hurt and, you know, hanging out with you guys that I see every single day at home. You know, sorry to be so. I, maybe I wish I were that someone or, yeah, that would be a different mom. That would be a different wife, right? So here's actually who I am, which is somebody who skied enough and who would rather be warm and um, not risk injury. So we meet ourselves and we welcome ourselves again, which is to say, this is who I am. You may, you may be mm-hmm. disappointed in that, and that I can talk to you about. So it's not a bully situation, right? We're conditioned to believe that, well, it's my way or the highway. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. It's not that. It's, hey, I kind of wish I wanted to go travel too. Wouldn't that be wonderful if I were that wife? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, I'm not. (laughs) So, you know, Uh we acknowledge where, who I really am and the want is not what you would want. Okay. Uh-huh. And then you're happier in those spaces of yes, want. You are. Yeah. And, and you're more real. More fun to be yeah. with. <laughs> and, and not real. resentful. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. what happens to women in their 40s and 50s is this resentment starts to creep in of like, 
you know, this is for you. And then you start to see women sort of, you know, it, it gets, it gets a little bit, um, sort of dark and snippy in there where it's like, you wanted to go on this holiday. Well, you need to say that ahead of time, right? You need to own that, Mm -hmm. that I don't want to do that Mm -hmm. rather than take that out on because they're getting what they want. You're in charge of what you need and want and make that happen. You're going to be a much Mm -hmm. more, uh, more wonderful person to be around. Do you want to move into any of your other, I think you've called them the pillars of self-caring? Yeah. So in, in some of my webinars and talks I and book, I talk about what is it that we can really do that is self-care? What is real self-care? If it's not the mani-pedi, well, what is this thing? So, and I give all sorts of, of, of ways of living differently, but what I want to touch on um, is... Actually, I'm going to touch on two. One is not assuming that when someone is not okay, that it's our fault. This is so big for women, which is learning to separate. This is because of me when someone's not okay and I have to fix it deeply ingrained in us to, wow, you're not okay. I'm interested in that and I want to hear about that and I'm not responsible for fixing it. When we can get that that skill, then we are no uh-huh. longer depleted. So I talk about that a lot in the book and in, in my talks. And then this other one, which is starting to tell the truth to tell the Mm -hmm. actual truth. Because as we know, we twist and turn and manage and sweeten and debark and work with what's really true. Again, our ultimate goal, make you okay. So one of the things we start to practice is, what if I just said what's true? I don't apologize for it. I don't throw myself under the bus for it. I don't then deactivate everything I just said. I say what's true and I stop speaking. (laughs) It's like a miracle, right? When you start practicing (laughs) that, that, you know, colleague gets offered a a new possible job by another colleague. And rather than, oh, I'd love to go for that interview. Yeah, I'm not really sure it's the avenue. Thank you so much for offering it. It's not the direction that I'm heading right now in my career. And then we close our mouth. We close our mouth. Yeah. We don't spend the next five mm-hmm. minutes apologizing or telling them how amazing they are for offering us that. We just close our mouth. And when we start doing that, you know, the barista gives us a coffee that's got way too much milk in it. We say, I actually asked for this dark. And they come back at you and say, oh, so you want me to dump all this out? You say, yes, actually, I would. And then we stop speaking. I'm not anal. I'm not neurotic. I'm not high maintenance. I know it's just me. I'm gluten intolerant. Suddenly I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. I'm, 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 I'm the problem. No. Yes, actually, that's what I asked for. We just get in the habit of that. It's life changing. All that energy, just that, again, that wasted, that sort of wasted energy in that dance. Um, Yeah, and we get comfortable, Libby, with you're maybe a little disappointed. You have to walk over to the mm -hmm. sink and remake it. Yes, and I can tolerate your being disappointed. When I said that to a client recently, she said, I don't get that. 
someone could be disappointed and you're okay. She just didn't get it. Like at a very fundamental level. Yeah. 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 They could be disappointed and guess who's I care about their disappointment, but it's not for me to fix separate. So we're out of this codependent way we live in the world. I need you to be okay for me to be okay. Actually, I don't. I care about your not okayness. But so that's the scale that I'm teaching over and over again, two separate people, two independent people. Right. Mm -hmm. But we start telling the truth as the beginning of that and then stand still and keep our mouth closed when they're not okay. Boy, is it a new skill for Mm -hmm. most of us. Mm -hmm. During the night that we had where we talked about your book, one person gave the ping pong analogy where they said or ping pong or I think they said tennis. Sorry. If you if you're dealing with something, um, you hit it back you hit the ball to the other person's court. And at that point, it's now in their court. You don't worry about it. You don't think about it. You only worry and think about it when that ball is hit back and it is in your court. That is now your turn to then, okay, now it's your time to think about it. And it's beautiful. I love that. I love that. And, you know, I love the, um, you know, clear message and I've we've touched on this is that this and again one of my favorite phrases um welcoming um the uh, welcoming and loving the whole catastrophe of yourself and you talk about you can't just love you know this is not how you say it but 80% of the pie and oh I wish this 20% I wish I were I don't know less needy less this less um that you really have to love all a hundred percent of who you are. That's that's the game right there is yeah. be curious. Yeah. We're curious about who we are. Because again, we've given up our author's cap, right? It, it's weather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you really have that relationship with what's arising in you, we're out of this battle of, you know. If this arises in me, that makes me bad. Or if this arises in me, that makes me good. We're just, we're more curious about, oh, look at this. Rage is coming up. Or, oh, look at this. Joy is coming up. When we start to not be so wary and scared and suspicious of what's arising Mm -hmm. in us because it could make us bad and then make us rejected, Mm -hmm. then we have this, all this energy. We're back in touch with our fundamental vitality. The reason we're so exhausted is because we've cut ourselves off from the source, from our real power source. Mm -hmm. It's like we've unplugged ourselves from ourselves. And then we're expecting Mm -hmm. ourselves to live off these fumes of what do you think of me, right? But when when we open to the full miracle and the full catastrophe, that we are, then our life force starts to flow through us again. And we just feel radically different and we behave radically different. And our empathy is actually real, right? It's not because it's who we should be. It's we're in touch with something Mm -hmm. much more profound. I would love for you. I know it's, we're almost out of your time. I would love for you to close with uh, your beautiful story of the wild gazelle. Uh, Yes. You want me to cry on the way out, right? (laughs) I guess I do. (laughs) Um, So 
I heard this story many years ago, but it has never left me. And I think I've included it in every book I've written, which is that this gazelle was um, early on in her life, she smelled a scent and um, it so moved her that she spent her entire life trying to locate that scent, searching the forest, running everywhere to find that scent. And then one day, uh, a hunter's arrow hit her in the flank. You got me. And as she was laying dying and the aroma of her own being was emanating, she smelled that scent that she had spent her life looking for. And that is that is our hero's journey as women to not wait until we are bleeding out to recognize that uh, brilliance. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, thank you for that. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for joining me. This is just a, a gift to women everywhere. Um, I appreciate it so much. I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you. And um, I'm so glad you're out there talking to women and, and, and changing lives. You're doing such important work. And I really, uh, I really respect it. So kind of you, Nancy. Okay. Thank you. Till we meet till again. We meet again. <laughs> Bye. Gosh, what therapeutic messages Nancy so beautifully outlined here. She is absolutely brilliant. Thanks to Nancy for doing this talk with me. I hope you found many things here that you can take away with you. So much of this has been life-changing for me. And thanks as always to Russell Kelly for sound editing and music magic. Bye everyone.